0: Hi, I'm Ali and I'm Penny
1: and you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write, the podcast about writing, publishing and creativity amongst life's many other demands. This evening I'm really excited um, because we are talking to Ilona Bannister whose debut um, novel is out on the 4th of March. It's called When I Ran Away and it's published by Two Roads and it is an absolutely brilliant book. It was a joy to read. It had me laughing, it had me crying, it had me feeling all sorts of things throughout the book and I sped through it because it is just absolutely brilliant. Helena, would you like to tell us a little bit more about the book? Yeah thank you thank you for saying
2: all that it's lovely. Um, yeah I will tell you about it so it's called When I Ran Away. Um, it is the story of Gigi. She is a New Yorker living in London with her British husband and her child and a new baby uh, but one morning everything caves in on her. Her uh, marriage, her feelings about motherhood, and her ongoing grief about a brother that she lost in 9 11. Uh, and so she snaps and she leaves her family. She's wearing a bathrobe and flip flops and she goes and she wanders the streets of London. Um, and this is the story about how she makes her way back from that, how she comes back from depression and grief. And it's not to be who she was before, it's not to be her pre-baby or the woman that she was in the past, but it's a journey of acceptance to who she is now, the mother she is now and the woman she is now and who she's meant to be. Um, It is about class and culture and Britishness and Americanness and family dysfunction, uh, pressures of working motherhood, uh, postnatal depression. There's so much in here, Um, (laughs) but uh, it's also funny. Um, some parts are funny. I hope people find it funny. It is
0: so funny. I mean, <laughs> I think we just need to make this really clear, like howling with laughter, funny. Don't read it in public if you get embarrassed when you laugh out
1: loud, funny.
0: Yeah. Um, put that out there. <laughs> it
1: is very funny. Yeah.
2: Because that, and that's important. That was important to me because um, there is a lot of darkness in it, but I think it's really important to look for chinks of light and to mm. find those. Um, and I think people are really good at doing that and I think it's important to highlight that that when we're going through tough times often humor um, is an incredible human quality Um, so I'm glad that that comes through.
1: It very much comes through it comes through in the whole book Um, and, and I really love the way that you use humor as well in the book. I think what struck me that the whole book itself is an exceptionally brave take on motherhood as women were fed this idea from a very early age that we can have it all, but yet Gigi just can't manage to do it all. Would you like to talk a little more, bit more about this? Yeah,
2: I am. Um, I, I really wanted to write a story about a woman who tried to do it, but found it really hard and mm. maybe failed. Uh, and how you get back up from that. Um, In many ways that paralleled my own experience. Um, I was a lawyer, I was an immigration lawyer, and I loved it. Um, But uh, my first son was born quite traumatically and after my second son was born also through a traumatic emergency C-section, I found that I just was not the same person and I needed some time. Uh, I was not bouncing back and I needed to take a break. So I did. I uh, stepped away from my career and it was just supposed to be for a year. Then that became two years and then three years. Uh, And then I wanted to return to work. I felt like I was strong enough to do it. Um, And I would go and interview and I kept not getting the job. Uh, And after a couple years as a stay-at-home mother and then trying to go back into the workforce and feeling or, or seeing that I wasn't making it, I, I, I reached I was a real low uh, because I, I thought if I had worked really really hard and gotten these degrees and gotten that job and built this career, surely I should be able to come back to it I needed a little break mm-hmm. you know some difficult stuff happened and I needed to step away but everyone around me was doing it. All my friends were doing it. Um, and, and I just couldn't understand why I kept hitting this wall. Uh, and it was embarrassing and upsetting. And I think a lot of stay-at-home mothers, you, you do take, there's quite a dip in your self-esteem as it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to try to get back into work and finding that I wasn't able to do it, that was really tough. Um, and so I wanted some of Gigi's story to reflect that. Because I think we we see a lot of motherhood stories about um, superwomen who do manage everything and do go back and are successful and have Mm. children, but they reach the top of their careers and and that is amazing. And I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. And I have friends who do that, and I admire that. Um, But I also want to recognize and to acknowledge that it doesn't happen for everyone, Mm -hmm. Um, and that sometimes you need to change course and direction. Um, And that just because it doesn't happen the first time you try doesn't mean that it won't. Mm. Um, So I I really wanted, I wanted that motherhood story, not the one of where she goes back to work and she succeeds and then runs the business. Um, The one that's more realistic, which is it it can be really hard to recover from having children Uh, and it may not work.
1: Yeah. I think that that very much a very realistic motherhood story about the difficulties of of having children and and going back to work and and maybe just actually it's just too much or even just choosing to stay at home as well it was just so refreshing to read a story like that I think um it felt like it was a book that I wish that I'd read when the kids were very little and I think it's a book that will speak to mothers I think it's a book that will speak to mothers who've do stay at home i think it's also a book that will speak to working mothers because she's trying to juggle it um and just it was so realistically portrayed and just with so much empathy as well i think that's one of your real skills um how compassionate you always are with your characters i feel like you're never um trying to make us feel a certain thing about the characters it's not as if you are trying to elevate one character above the other they're always very much that there is this empathy towards the characters on the page and you just show us what they're doing. How do you go about developing your characters? Hmm, wow.
2: Um, well, I don't know if, you've, if you guys have this experience when you're writing, but um, I find that when you, that they, they come to me and they start talking to me in my head. It's a really strange experience. <laughs> Um, but Gigi was a voice in my head when I would be walking around the neighborhood, pushing the pram, doing the endless back and forth to nursery, back and forth to the grocery store, getting a coffee, going to the playground. Just the the constant monotony of that circle that you do when you have tiny children. Mm-hmm. I, and I wasn't talking to anyone. I think you you can Mm -hmm. see it. You see all the other mothers walking down the street who are also not talking to anyone who just have something going on in their head as they're going through their day. And Gigi was that voice to me. Um, but she, she would say things that were very funny and she is like, I had a back and forth with her about these things I would notice about living in the UK that I would just be, I would have no one else to say them to, but I had her in my head. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, so she was like a running mon- a running monologue, um, and when I decided to um, take the novel writing course and I needed to produce a pitch, um, I didn't I didn't have anything. I had a week to put this application in, and I didn't I didn't have a pitch. I didn't have a novel, but I had her in my head. Um, so she's always been a, a strong voice, and the other characters. Um, I developed them in the same way. They, they tell you what they Mm. want to do. You might have other plans for them, but ultimately they tell you what they want to do. Um, so the cast of friends she developed around her, uh, sort of spoke to me the same way.
0: I would love to hear more about, um, the novel writing course that you did and what made you apply first of all and when you had to get it in so quickly and yet what was it that made you start and did you imagine you would get to this point with it
2: um no I never in a million years had any idea that any of this was going to happen that I was going (laughs) to be a writer I had no plans to be a writer it was never in my life plan I was going to be a lawyer that's what I was going to do um so as I said before, I was I kept striking out on these interviews, and I was in a in a low place. Uh, my husband said, "You should write. Um, I think you I think you'd be good at it." Not because I'd ever written anything before, but he just said you should look into it, see what you can find. So I sort of half heartedly looked around online, and I found the Faber Academy course, and I had a and as I had a week to put this application together, and. I thought, you know what? What is there to lose? Um, I had a few pages that I had sketched out about 9 11, and I had a few pages about a birth story. Um, So I just sort of whacked it in to see what would happen, to see if he was right. Can I write? Or would anyone be interested in what I have to say? I didn't know. Um, So I just threw it in there. And the week that I got onto the course, I also got a job offer. Uh, which was the first offer I had gotten. So this is the thing I've been waiting for, for a year. Uh, But we sat down and did the math. And uh, the salary uh, would, um, by the time we paid for childcare, we'd be breaking even. Uh, And it didn't feel like it made much sense to return to work on that sort of basis. I think that's something a lot of women come up against Mm -hmm. is when you try to reenter, is it actually economically viable for your family for you Mm -hmm. to go back? Um, so we decided to take a risk. Uh, we agreed that I would take the course and we would see what would happen. If I had a book at the end of the year and it was a good book, um, then I would go for it and pursue it. And if I didn't, then at least I would have a year of a course that I took. I could talk about it in interviews. Mm -hmm. And even if I had a book that wasn't a great book, I still had a book. Um, so that was an achievement. Uh, so we proceeded on that basis. Uh, And I was really disciplined about the class, um, about turning in my words every month. Um, And by the end of that year, I I did have a book. Uh, It was really lacking in structure, and it needed a lot of work, and it was a bit of a mess. Uh, But that's when I started um, taking it around, asking lots of people to read it, trying to figure out if, if this was a story that people wanted to read. And I was lucky that they did. So it all happened quite by accident I'm really shocked that <laughs> that I'm here and that a book is coming out it's it's amazing yeah also, it's very amazing
1: um, <laughs> but I
0: well I was going to say as well because this is coming out in both the US and the UK so not only did you sell a book but you sold a book in two regions and I believe am I right in thinking one of those regions is a two book deal yes yeah, so in the UK it's a two book deal mm. so, to go from not realizing you wanted to write and doing a course and giving yourself a year to do it to a two book deal. I mean, that's quite, it's quite incredible, isn't it? It's quite incredible. Um, and so how did you get from that point of, um, realizing you had something, realizing you had something interesting, realizing you actually did want to pursue it to, um, sending out your queries and pitches to agents? Um, So I,
2: the, I I set deadlines. Um, I did not want this to be something that it it was, I would be be writing a book for five years and then it would never be going anywhere. I didn't feel that I could afford to do that. I felt very much like this was great and I loved writing and it was a fantastic experience taking the class, but if it really wasn't going to go anywhere, I needed to know that Mm -hmm. and I needed to get that feedback. Uh, So I worked with my tutor who did the first edit of my manuscript, and I I worked really hard on that structure. Um, And then I started, and you're not supposed to do this. People say you're not supposed to give your manuscript out to anyone, but I gave out like 20 copies of my manuscript to everyone I knew, gave it out to um, friends in all different walks of life to get their perspective and to see what they thought, to see if this was actually marketable. so I collected all that feedback. Some of it was good. Some of it was negative. As we all know, the negative feedback is the best feedback Mm -hmm. uh, because it, it changes you for the better. Um, But I gave myself a deadline. Uh, I gave myself then another year to find an agent. So I gave, because I knew that finding an agent can be a very, very long process. Uh, But I, again, I didn't want to be doing it forever. So I worked on the manuscript. I collected all of my feedback. Um, and then there, then I started sending it out and there was that great lull and you don't hear anything from anyone (laughs) for for months and months and months. Um, and then two weeks before, uh, my deadline for starting to look for jobs again, um, I did find my agent and, uh, we worked on it from there. So it, it worked out. Uh, so I was, I was nervous because the deadline was approaching and I was like, oh, that's too bad that this experiment is coming to an end. But um, I was lucky to meet Alice and here we are.
0: Oh, wow. So two weeks over the deadline, that's incredible. But this is, I think, so interesting. I think it's, there's such a power in setting deadlines for ourselves, even if it is maybe not entirely controllable, Getting it, finding an agent's not an entirely controllable thing. But what you can control is finishing the manuscripts yeah. and querying. And getting it out there yeah. um and so you did everything that was in your power and then yeah. you had to let go right yeah
2: yeah um and you also have to it, it's a it's a very tough business and it's also really it's important to stay realistic i was always very very realistic i knew that this thing i was trying to do um was very difficult and the chances of actually getting published are slim especially the way that I entered this and what I was doing and coming out of nowhere and just sort of throwing myself into it, I, I wanted to make sure that I was very realistic um, about how successful I might be, I might or might not be, and being okay with that. Knowing that this was, this was a great risk to take and it was a really good thing to try. It did wonders for me, for my confidence and for my mm-hmm. self-esteem and for my recovery from my kids. And I just said to myself, if that's all I get from it, then that is okay. And that's a, that's a big mm-hmm. achievement. And anything that goes beyond that is, is just astronomical. So um, I was always very content with what I had done. Um, and then when the next thing would happen, that would feel really good.
1: And so do you think without motherhood, without having kids, that you would have changed, had this kind of divergent path? Or do you think you would still be working in law?
2: I yeah, I I think I would still be a lawyer because I loved it. I really loved it. Um, But I worked with a lot of families and vulnerable people and that kind of work. you really have to be good at compartmentalizing and I think a lot of women find this too once you have children suddenly the way you handle things emotionally the way you deal with people it's it's completely different it's
0: so different isn't it that was actually a massive shock to me um a massive shock actually what I could deal with and what I couldn't deal with after having children Mm -hmm. even though I didn't I wouldn't say went through any kind of trauma birth of my children. And it's just like a like you don't have skin anymore almost. Yeah. 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 And and I my the
2: the level of stress that I could handle was also very different. I -hmm. wasn't able to handle the emotional impact of things the same way. And I also wasn't able to handle the the daily stress. Um especially Dealing with anxiety after the children were born. It just, there was just a it was like a a switch was flipped inside of me. Um, And I had to face it that 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 was something that happens that can be a consequence of um, having kids. And so you life changes. Mm. um, And you kind of have to find a new path. Um, Mm. And this path has really worked out because I'm able to work again, which I'm really, really needed to do. Uh, but I'm able to do it on my own terms, um, which helps me with my anxiety, which helps me be here for my kids. Um, So I'm very happy that things went this way. I do
0: see a parallel life where I would have been Mm. a different person with a different career, but Mm. here we are. Well, I'm very happy you found writing because (laughs) honestly, this book is so incredible. It's so incredible. I feel like there isn't that many books novels that i've read that represent motherhood in a way that really that really speaks to me i mean there really isn't that many Um, and i think i yeah i think it's such a gift to be able to give a voice to someone like gigi and i think it's not also because of the motherhood it's there's so much obviously so much else going on in the book Um, and as a fellow foreigner in this country who has given birth in this country not understanding what the hell is going on there's also just so much in there i was like yes 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 you know i think um obviously british people will enjoy it as well but <laughs> but there was so much in there that i could ref- um that i totally connected with from the point of view of being an outsider in this country as well um, and i think you mentioned once as well that you you really like this idea of writing a foreigner in to london because it feels like there needs to be a character that comes from that perspective yeah yeah um
2: and i just and i just think living in the united kingdom especially as an american because americans have this idea of britain in their minds from the time that we are tiny we have this like, this this vision of britain and british culture and then when you come to live here and you actually become a part of it, or you try to become a part of it unsuccessfully, um, because you realize there are so many quirks, there are so many differences in language, there are so many customs. Um, I just, even though I was married to someone British, I until we moved here, I didn't really. I I, I looked at him and I was like, oh, now I get why you're like that's like this is the whole country of you. Yeah. Here. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I, find, I find Britain a fascinating place. I find the language fascinating. There are so many accents here. It's such a musical place. Um, they're just regional accents and London accents, the accents of foreigners and immigrants who come here and then learn to speak British English. Um, I just find that fascinating. I find the mix of people here fascinating. Um, so I also while I make a lot of observations about Britain in the book, I also wanted to um, pay a little tribute to it because I think this is a fascinating place to live and I, I do love living here.
0: It's a very affectionate portrait, I'll say that. I mean, yes, there's a few jokes and a few, you know, there's lots of observations, um, but yeah, it's very affectionate and I think I see, I see Britain in the same way that you do and um, I think Australians come from a slightly different perspective than Americans do when coming to this country, but they're still so many more differences than you're quite prepared for Mm -hmm. because we think we know and understand
1: and then we realize oh we're actually quite different (laughs) yeah Yeah. I really like that as well I felt that the the portrayal of this woman who is an outsider um not just to the country she's in but to the circumstances that she finds herself in is really powerful as well um, what I really enjoyed in the book were the female friendships that started to come out were the different others, um, women with different experiences of motherhood too, who were suddenly all flung together because they'd happened to have babies, which I think is something that happens um when you suddenly find yourself trapped in hellish antenatal groups and play groups and these kind of places that you might not feel exactly at ease in how important to you was it to get those kind of female friendships and oddities into the book um
2: yeah i i think it was it was really important that that was there um because i think you're right we suddenly when you have a baby you are thrown together with other people who have babies and you don't have anything in common other than that you have the baby um -hmm. (laughs) um, and I think you find this a lot as you sort of go through your daily life when you're home with a baby um but those dynamics are so important and those relationships are really really important I was lucky enough the the Antenatal group in the book does not reflect at all the antenatal group that I was a part of. I'm just going to put I'm that out. out there right now,
0: in case you listening.
1: <laughs> this was <is> my one.
2: <laughs> <laughs> the women who I met were absolutely lovely, and the support that they gave me, and um, the friendships that we have, and that we still know each other ten years later. My uh, my oldest boy is turning ten tomorrow, so that's a um, these are long friendships and. People know you at a time in your life when you're very, very vulnerable. So I really Mm. cherish those relationships. But at the same time, you do also meet the women like you meet in this book. Um, But what I wanted to show with them is, uh, particularly with Suki, is that you never know what Mm. someone is actually going through. Uh Um, That I don't know why this happens, but people feel a pressure to present themselves with their newborn in a certain light, as though they're keeping it together, everything is all right, um, I'm handling everything, everything is fine, look, I'm skinny again, I'm, I'm losing my baby weight, I'm doing this, I'm doing that. There's just so many pressures from so many different directions, um, but we never actually know what what is uh, going on with people. Um, and it's important not to make assumptions, uh, mm. especially about mothers or what or what they went through to get to that place, what they went through to have their children, mm. uh, there's there's a lot more to it than it appears.
0: Mm. And like, um, like Ali was saying earlier, the empathy that you have for all the characters really comes through. And that's what I loved, especially about all of the women in the book, was that even though there was some abhorrent behavior at some points, there was so much empathy for all of the mothers and where they're actually really coming from Um, and there's so much need for connection Mm -hmm. and like such a desperate need for connection with all of these women and I think that comes across so clearly and in such a warm way because I think often
2: some of that behavior comes from a place of fear Mm -hmm. that, that sometimes people say things or they or they show things or they brag about things because um they're they're clinging on desperately to be doing it right am I doing this right I'm going to talk to you about breastfeeding all day long because I I am really good at it and I just I need you to know that I'm doing this right because they just need that reassurance
0: and also maybe pride that there's one thing that they're doing that they feel really successful at even if everything else is going to shit they're like I can do this one thing So I yeah. think some of that competitiveness that comes up sometimes,
2: um, is, is really about just needing to know that, that they, something is going right. Um, even if that means that the woman sitting across from you feels a little bit bad because now you've said that thing, you don't mean it that way, but you feel better. And I think that everyone mm-hmm. does that. Everyone mm-hmm. does. Better. Um, and, and so I think it was important to to get that across that what was that's what's really going on in that group is there's a, a bunch of women who are scared um and who need to know that it's going to be okay and that they're doing it right and maybe it's not coming out compassionately um but i think it's a really common experience that a lot of new mothers have sort of the bizarre things that people say the expectations they have uh,
1: oh yeah absolutely <laughs> it's, it's very bizarre the things that suddenly it's like you're this um like your common property all of a sudden Mm -hmm. you know even as soon as you're pregnant people think that they can kind of just pat your tummy and say things about what you look like if you've put on weight or if you've not put on enough weight or what's happened and and it's just very odd it's very dehumanizing experience I think to a certain extent and that really comes across in the book as well I think some of my favorite parts of the book were when Gigi Was alone when she's on her own in the hotel room, and we get these really interior scenes of what's happening with her. But I also loved when she's in the hotel room that she's watching, that she's watching TV. Do you want to talk a little bit more about (laughs) what she's watching and why you decided to bring this in? Because it's just amazing. (laughs) So Gigi watches
2: The Real Housewives of New Jersey. Now I don't (laughs) watches a whole season. It's on. um, They're doing like a whole season uh and the Real Housewives of New Jersey are her safe place um I don't know if you are familiar with the Real Housewives franchises.
0: uh, Familiar but but haven't (laughs) indulged but I thoroughly enjoyed that in the book I have to say. (laughs) I loved that bit. Um I had
2: an experience uh when I came to live in the UK and uh in the early days when I wasn't quite sure what was um what was going on and you feel sort of homesick and you're unsettled. And then I discovered um, American reality TV. I never watched it when I lived in America, uh, but I didn't have a job when I first came here. And suddenly there was this new world of people who were American and it just, just even listening to their voices mm-hmm. just felt mm-hmm. really, really comforting. Um, and then I developed what happens, a lot of Real Housewives fans will tell you this, you begin to develop a relationship with these women as though they are your friends, because they're so intimate about, about their lives and their children and their husbands and just the things that get up to you, that you come to know them very, very well. And particularly when I was new to the UK and I didn't have sort of, I had my husband's friends, but I didn't have my own friends, yet mm. I had my Housewives um and I still have them to this day and at this point I've known them for <laughs> 10 years and now I really I've watched their children go, grow up I've seen them go through the divorces and second marriages and I've been with them through all their dramas and I I feel a really strong connection to them not just the women of New Jersey New Jersey are the closest ones to Staten Island which is where I grew up so <laughs> I have loyalty to them um but the the New York City the um Atlanta, Beverly Hills, those ones in particular. I spend a lot of time with them. I know that's not like a very literary thing to admit. I'm not supposed to be
0: a writer. But, but I um, I love that. And I love the way in the book, because I think as well, one of the things you do so beautifully in the book is talk about um, class and you put um, Gigi in these really difficult positions. And one of the really interesting things was putting her in London with quite a wealthy husband where none of these new women that she's meeting understands where she's from because in America people would understand what her accent meant and where she was from and be able to kind of classify her in the same way that British people classify other British people. But when you take someone from working class in a different country and put them in the UK, people can't place them. And that mismatch of her almost like not knowing whether she wanted to claim it and wanted them to know or she didn't want them to know yeah
2: um that's a really it's a really interesting thing that i've observed um and i wanted to i wanted to talk about that because so much in the uk um is based on accents and what people sound like Mm -hmm. you can tell immediately um what their education is their background is what part of the country Mm -hmm. they came from how they were raised Uh, and i thought that was a fascinating thing um because in the U.S., while we might all have different regional accents, uh, it, it doesn't work that way. Um, your, your, uh, your, your class is not necessarily tied to what you sound like. People might be able to tell um, where you're from or what education you may have had. But it's it's not nearly the same kind of marker that here's such a strong marker. Um, and take that away, people don't know what to do with you. And I've had mm-hmm. that experience a lot not quite, quite sure where you're from. They're not quite sure if you, have, if you share the same references. Do you share the same class? It makes people quite uneasy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, I th- and I just think that's fascinating. I think that's just normal human behavior, but I thought that was really, really interesting um, mm-hmm. from an American's perspective. So I, w- I wanted to make that something that happens in the book because I'm not sure if, if people notice that, that um, how important what you sound like is and how if you take it away, um what does that leave you with it leaves you with the person mm-hmm. and sometimes people don't know what to do with that um so i think that's really interesting
1: i think that was absolutely brilliant i'm aware that i'm saying absolutely brilliant a lot, but um, it really does just kind of sum up the book yeah i just love that she gave you the scope to explore britishness and the strangeness of being british but to also explore feeling homesick and what you do Mm. when you feel homesick I find that at the moment I'm listening to a lot more Scottish music than I ever listened to when I actually lived Mm. in Scotland and it's just to hear the accents and just kind of just to feel at home I just need to do that so that I'm not feeling completely abandoned I think um, one of the scenes in the book that probably a lot of women will identify with is that opening off the book um where Gigi finds the shoes Mm -hmm. can you tell us a little (laughs) bit about the shoes because it is a supremely great scene (laughs) um so the shoes are they're downstairs right by
2: the door right now they are a daily thing that (laughs) that we deal with in this house Um, and and the more women I spoke to uh, the more I found out that this thing with the shoes is is almost universal, um, this issue with the shoes by the door. But really it's the symbol of that one thing, that one thing that happens all the time. And if it happens one more time, then that's it. And that that's the straw that breaks the camel's back. Um, and I think things like that, shoes by the door or cupboard doors left open or towels on the floor, whatever that thing might be, in your house, the sock that's left in the corner, it comes to, it comes to, sim, it almost comes to symbolize the relationship. Mm-hmm. That, that, that becomes, it's, a, it's like the focal point of everything that might be difficult in your relationship um, in that one thing that irritates you so much. Uh, so I thought that that felt like a very universal place to start. Because mm-hmm. I feel like as soon as you know, as soon as you know the shoes are by the door, then you know that feeling of, oh, that one thing
0: um, that I just can't take
2: anymore. Uh, so,
0: yeah. And one other thing that's very present in the book that we haven't discussed yet is grief and processing grief. And I think, you know, very early on in the book, you go back to nine eleven and Gigi's experience of 9-11. And I have to say, I think I messaged you after I <laughs> read it. Um, I sent you an email. I absolutely wept when I read that chapter I lived in New York over 9-11 and her experience apart from the fact she loses her brother uh her experience so reflected my experience that day and I had never ever read anything that reflected my experience that day so it was first of all such a shock but also it was so beautifully captured I didn't get on the Staten Island Ferry I went I walked to, back to Brooklyn on the Manhattan Bridge, but this, the experience in every other way was so similar. Um, and is that, is that something that's been there waiting to come out for, for tw- it's, uh, you know, almost 20 years now? Um, have you been wanting to put that down to paper for that long, do you think? Yeah, um,
2: I, I, was on, I took the Staten Island Ferry that day. So I worked um, in an office on Wall Street, which is very close to the World Trade Center, Uh, and I, uh, came, we were evacuated from our building and I saw the towers on fire and I was in the crowd of people that ran to the ferry. Um, uh, the, the collective grief that we all Mm -hmm. had that day, I think everyone who was in the city and who was from the city still carries it. Um, it is the type of thing that you stays with you the rest of your life. Um, I did not lose anyone in my family on that day um, but I uh, had Frankie in the book because I, I wanted to pay tribute to New York um, I you know that is my heart is there that is my hometown um, it has been 20 years now and one of the things I notice every year is that um, they still read the names but there is less and less coverage there is uh, with the passage mm-hmm. of time um, Uh, there is less and less that that we acknowledge about it. We don't acknowledge it the same way that we once did. Mm. And I, it was important to me that, that I make my tribute um, Mm. to the people who died that day and to my city and to the way the city recovered. Um, I also wanted to tell a nine 11 story that included the ferry. And I don't think many people know about the incredible water rescue that happened that day. How many thousands of people were evacuated from Manhattan by boat, all kinds of boats, Mm -hmm. boats, sailboats, um, water taxis. Anyone who had a boat in the Harbor came to the edge of Manhattan. There were people literally hanging off the edge of Manhattan. They came and they rescued them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, that's a story that doesn't get told very often. Um, So I wanted to give that perspective because there were some very heroic people who did that, Mm -hmm. that day. Um, So I, I, I think the very first thing I ever wrote was about Mm -hmm. 9-11 because it's in a, I think as it is for any New Yorker and anyone who was there, it's in a very deep place. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I wanted, it just, I was worried about including it in the book because I know it's very emotive. Um, I wanted to make sure that I was very respectful uh, and I, I just wanted to pay tribute um, in a way that was appropriate. I didn't mm. want to take anyone else's story either. Mm. I didn't read any 9-11 stories until I had written this chapter because I did not want to inadvertently take anyone's story.
0: It's um, funny, I haven't read that that many kind of personal accounts for a very long time, like since you know, early on. And it was just so uncanny how you captured that, how you captured that sense of um, I think for me, the thing that was so incredible about that time was this, this intense sense of community that sprung up and care that I don't think, I don't know if it's talked about much outside of New York. I don't know if people outside really understand what happened, but this, um, yeah, it's something that I've I read accounts of the Blitz in London and I know what they're talking about. Like, it feels like I I completely understand what they're talking about and that, that, that absolute intensity of emotion and how everyone banded together to the point where I remember like a few weeks or a month or two later, someone was having a yard sale and they said, don't worry, we're not leaving New York. You know, they wanted to make it really clear to their neighbors. They weren't leaving because of what happened because there was such a strong sense of community that sprung up there But, um, but yeah, it was so, it's so beautifully told from, from the point of view of being there, but also I think the point of view of, um, maybe just selling that real personal side of what happened that day that on a really personal level, not on that big grand scale of events that happened, but on that tiny granular, this is what happens to a person when they experience that kind of event. Yeah. And that
2: that feeling of um, sort of dislocation as well, which Gigi's parents mm. have, where they mm. just keep doing the, the the same thing they were doing, because even though they know the towers are burning over there, there is nothing that you can immediately do. Mm-hmm. And the bizarre experience of being in this type of emergency and being comp- utterly powerless to do anything—so mm. what do you do? You sort of—I think a lot of people had a really bizarre experience where it's- they were sort of eating and drinking and playing cards and watching tv when they know the horror Mm. that is happening um it's a really it's a strange um dissociation that happens and I wanted to capture that bit of it too because Mm. um I'm not sure that people realize that's something that can happen in the capacity
0: yeah it was so strange I remember um I met a random girl on the street (laughs) because we were all evacuated and we were on the street we decided we would walk to the nearest hospital together and try and help or give blood or something. And we were all turned away. There were hundreds of us there going, do we need anything? And they said, there's no casualties. There's no casualties. We don't need anything. And so it was like that sense of like, like we're all everyone on the street, literally thousands of trying to do something and not having anywhere to put that energy. And I was really grateful. I had to walk back to Brooklyn that day because it was something to do. I know it sounds so strange, but it was like um, you had to put your focus somewhere. And yeah, and you couldn't do anything particularly useful. And it came across that all of that came across so, so beautifully in the book. And it was a bit of a shock, actually, how um, accurately all of that was portrayed. But um, not to be a total downer, I mean, it was it is, it's not going to depress you all. <laughs> the book is also incredibly funny as well. But it's, it's so, so elegantly toes that line between um, incredible humour. And incredible darkness, um, and the humor really does, you know, lift you out at lots of points and pull you out again.
2: Um, good. I'm glad you said that because, because um, another thing too is is that New Yorkers and, and British people, they are they are also they're naturally funny people. Mm, yeah, and I think both cultures handle difficulty in a in a very similar way. Um, where the worst thing in the world could be happening, but a New Yorker will have a one-liner for you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's the same thing that happens to Gigi when she's you know in the hospital here in Britain, because it's because British people they do the same thing. That you could be you know you you're in the worst place you could possibly be. You're scared. You're terrified. And then they will say something to you, and everyone is smiling, and we're all just getting on with it. Um, and I just <laughs> that's an incredible skill. It's a real skill. Um, so, um, so I wanted to have that in the book too, because I think that's something that New Yorkers and Londoners and particularly both have in common. Um, so I'm glad that comes across. It's, it's, I know there there's, there's a lot of heavy stuff, but it's important that you can laugh in between. That.
1: Yeah, I think you certainly do laugh. And um, you get that balance just right between um, it being heavy and also not feeling heavy it doesn't feel like a heavy book it doesn't feel like it's um a issues book it doesn't feel God, like you're no. setting no. out to tackle issues and yet you are you're unpicking um how we treat mothers how we treat outsiders um so many things that you are delving into and and in a really kind of fearless head-on way but it doesn't come across like that it doesn't come across as a an earnest book it's it's an exceptionally funny book um an exceptionally hard-hitting I think just to go back to the point about New York and 9-11 um what I thought was really important was to talk about it now and to have literature that still remembers this collective scar because afterwards in the aftermath we had a whole slew of literature but I've not read anything for such a very long time Um, and yeah I really like that that there was something that was bringing it back into our consciousness and and remembering what what happened and the effect that it had on people as well particularly I think now when we're kind of going through well whatever we call what we're going through this new kind of trauma that we will be unpicking in literature for many years to come. Um, yeah, it, it just felt like an important thing to be doing. Kind of talking off now, how are you managing to find time to write this next book that you're working on?
2: <laughs> oh, it's been an interesting, it's been an interesting year. Um, I don't, uh, I'm not really sure. Every day is different uh, and it, it is very hard to plan. It's very hard to have a routine. Uh, I used to be really strict about um, sort of getting up at 5 a.m. and writing before the children went to school and having that sacred time in the morning. Um, I still do that occasionally, but it, it's been uh, ruptured a bit because um, I have a son who wakes up very early um, and sort of early mornings have kind of gone out the window, this this sort of new bizarre life that we've all been living um where time is very elastic and the days all run into each other and the weekends and the weekdays are the same and um it's it's been strange but I have learned I never used to be able to do this but I have learned to write in sort of 15 to 20 minute snatches of time uh in between homeschooling and making lunch and doing laundry and answering questions. And um, because it's had just out of necessity, Um, I'm on a deadline and the book has to get written and um, I'm just sort of limping through it. I'm noticing, I don't know if you're noticing this with your work, I'm noticing that I reread some of my work and I don't remember writing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I don't, I just, it's just, came out and I put it down and then I forgot about it um but I think that's also out of necessity and just getting it out uh and then kind of worrying about it later
0: so Mm. do you think it's a practice thing almost that you've sort of just you've been forced to do work in 20 minute chunks and so out of practice and having to do it repeatedly it's just working now
2: yeah. Now um, I think you, you can become used to anything, right? I mean, the kids mm. have gotten used to doing school this way. Everyone's gotten used to working this way. I work from home. Suddenly my home is just full of noise and people mm. all, all the time um, who are always eating. Also, that's the other oh, thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> they always have dirty clothes. I don't, it's just, there is, there is no quiet time ever mm-hmm. anymore. Um, so I, I've just adapted. Um, and I never used to be a person who could, I used to have to have everything really neat and tidy. I used to have to have, um, uh, everything in order. I, I can't think if the space is cluttered. I mean, the space now there is, there's like a toolbox the laundry, there's kids stuff, there's piles of books. It doesn't matter. I just sit and I've learned to focus. Um, so I appreciate that. That's a new skill. I mean, it's not ideal
0: but um interesting but. isn't it it's like um and, you know this idea of we have these ideas of certain rituals that we have to perform in order to work and maybe if we're forced we don't have to have some of those rituals and believe me i'm not suggesting that we stay in the current situation we're in by anyways but i wonder if we can learn something about that and about the way we work and i think i mentioned to ali already i wrote an article this summer, with my son bouncing up and down on my lap, and I never in a million years years thought I would be able to achieve that. But somehow, the pressure of a deadline makes you achieve all sorts of things. Um, but maybe, maybe there is something that we can take away from this that is like a tiny bit more um, faith in ourselves to not be so dependent on certain conditions.
2: And I think we also we have this idea about writing. I think where writers sort of sit in a, in, a, in, a, in a room and it might be a cold room or it might be a lovely room or it might be a sunlit room, but they're, they're always in a room with something hot to drink and deep in thought. And that's just not, I don't know anyone who writes that way. I've never been able to write that way. Um, there've always been kids around and other responsibilities. It doesn't really happen that way. So I think if mm-hmm. you can get rid of the idea that it's supposed to be a certain way, yeah. mm-hmm.
1: um, then it, it's any way that you need for it to be. Like, exactly. Yeah. So I th- yeah. I would absolutely kill for that. I think that it just sounds um, amazing. completely amazing. Um, I could never used to write in a mess either. I used to always have to um, have it really tidy, quiet room, all these kind of <laughs> luxuries and now like the kitchen table is piled high with books because I decided to try and find places to put books. So the kitchen table stacked with books and my work and um a jigsaw and you know just loads of other stuff. I'm actually really cramped when I'm writing as well because there's just no space. And yeah, but you can still do it. I find that I'm doing like thinking the daytime when I'm doing all the other stuff that I have to do so when I'm doing the dishes or when I'm cooking or whatever this is when the characters start speaking to me as well um I've got characters doing exactly what you described earlier at the moment and I've tried to tell them to be quiet because I don't have time to write them down I'm just like (laughs) no you can't do this to me I do not have time but they're not listening it's just like and this is I think where some of the whatever the odd magic that happens with writing that I would really like to try and rationalise away. There is just something, there's some sort of something that happens as well. And um, yeah, the characters are talking to me in the times that I'm not supposed to be thinking, but it's the only time I've got, isn't it? It's, you know, we don't have time to be sitting deep in thought. So you've got to be in thought when you're doing the laundry that I don't do, or you're doing something else. (laughs) Um, I've also let go of uh,
2: pressuring myself to write every day, um, or feeling like if I'm not doing doing something every single day that it's not going to happen. Like it's not going to happen. That's because it's just not realistic anymore. Um, so, like today, for example, nothing got written today. Uh, but I've also learned to not panic about that mm-hmm. and not freak out, um, because I I also believe that your subconscious is really powerful mm, yep. and often I find when I miss a day or two and then I come back I have loads mm-hmm. of stuff right yeah because my subconscious has been working on it so I always try to say to myself when I get nervous or I'm worried because it's not happening it's not coming out then I just think oh, well my I it's I'm working on it I know I'm working yeah. on it. brain so just give yourself a break don't worry about it
1: because mm.
2: it, it will come when it's supposed to Um, yeah yeah
1: I think that's called creative worrying I did a lot of research into this a long time ago so I've forgotten all the terms but it is an actual thing where not being with the work or not doing Mm -hmm. the work doesn't mean that you're not actually somehow on some level doing it I'm really bad at taking my own advice i would always tell other people just to you know if it's not coming go and do something else go for a walk do something that just engages a different part of your brain but i'm still at the stage of oh my goodness if i haven't written today am i actually a writer which is something that i need to get over because it's just not productive yeah yeah um
0: i'd really love to hear elena what you're reading at the moment is there anything exciting that you've read at the moment um
2: yes I am uh so I'm reading a funny book I think we need funny Mm -hmm. so I'm reading a book it's called wow no thank you (gasps) oh I've been wanting to read that it's a good brilliant it's so funny um it's it's just laugh out loud funny that's so hard to do to write that kind of to make someone laugh at something you wrote is so difficult so I just think she's a genius so that's really great so that's a funny book um, I just finished Mrs. Death, Mrs. Death. <gasps> oh, that's, well, that's my next,
0: that's yeah. lined up on my audiobooks.
2: It is really, truly something else.
0: It is really, um. Exciting, exciting.
2: It's a piece of art, really. It's mm. really on a different level to most, uh, to anything. I mean, that's
0: truly my, special. I, um, hang Selena on, I'm just going to pull her up because she's in my. <coughs> yeah, Selena Godden. She's Selena um, Godden, yeah. And she's a poet, isn't she? the poet and so
2: for a poet when you can feel it it's just a different way of using the language mm-hmm. um she's written this novel but it is like just it is the poem it's incredible I've never read anything like it it's, it's truly amazing
0: I am so excited that that's next on my on my audible it's waiting uh, in my library for me that's so exciting
2: and luster that's the other thing I finished um oh I really want to read that, that too Raven Leilani, um, that, that is really also very beautiful, incredible um, way with detail, just picking up on, on things about people that um, other people don't notice. It's, it's really, really good. And I also, she's young and it's about a young woman. Um, and I really like reading books written by women much younger than me because I feel like I'm learning There's a lot I need to learn. I'm 43 now, and I feel like uh, there's a lot I need to know about what young women are dealing Mm with. It's different to when I was in my 20s. Um, So I really enjoy reading those books by the younger authors because they have a lot to teach us. We learned Mm -hmm. a lot. Learned a lot from that book, Luster. Um, So yeah, a lot of great books out at the
0: moment. Oh, so many good books. Yeah, I know it's really hard. Ali, what do you? What did you read this week?
1: Uh, to be honest I haven't read very much this week because I read loads like at last week I read what like three books in a week absolutely plowed through books and then this week I've been I think I tired myself out. I am reading <laughs> Happy by Nicola Barker but I've only just started it. I've been told um, by my friend, Ever Dundas, Ever is also an author and she's told me for years, you've got to read Nicola Barker, you've got to do it. And I hadn't. Um, and then I read one of her books in the summer um, and it was absolutely excellent. So I'm just, just started happy. I'm really enjoying it. It's, um, it's, it's really clever. So yeah, I will talk about it more. <laughs> on future podcasts, but yeah, I've had a bit of a lull week. I, I feel like I've just hit this kind of COVID isolation lockdown mm-hmm. wall. So reading has been much minimized. And I think also um in the way that we're recording this, it's only been what, four days since we last spoke. <laughs> and I got yes. very excited about the last things that I've been reading. So <laughs> there's not, I'm afraid I have not fully completed the book in those four days which is much remiss of me and I will rectify it
0: (laughs) how about you well I just finished well actually on the weekend um insatiable by Daisy Buchanan and oh my goodness it is so fun it is so 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 fun and it is about a young woman in her late 20s and she's very recently broken up with a fiance and has basically said goodbye to a whole life that she was lined up for, has a job that looks perfect on paper, but it's shit in reality. Um, And she is sort of seduced by this couple and this couple that have this life that she kind of wants to be involved in. And it is so wonderful. And there's a lot of sex and it's very fun. It's basically like, contemporary dilly cooper um, and it's just exactly what i re- needed to read <laughs> in a really miserable february quite frankly um, not just because of lockdown and not just because it's february but it's just generally been a quite tough month in our household anyway uh, and it's just oh it's so fun it's so fun and i think daisy really captures this the absolute sort of awfulness of being in this in between where you don't quite fit in anywhere and you've you've you know this character violet has sort of admitted to herself that this life that she was lined up for is not for her that she hasn't found her and she's in this in between and it's really wonderful
1: it sounds brilliant. I've heard a lot of good things about it um, which is another one to add to the list but the list is just getting I know, longer it's a ridiculous. and longer at the moment. It's, I, I don't know what's happened this year with books. I don't know if it's because a lot of books were pushed as well. I feel like that's probably partly happened, what it is. Yeah, yeah it's just kind of exploding around us at the moment but it was absolutely a pleasure to talk to you um, and really all the best Alona for the next month because I know that you've obviously got your UK launch and then you've got your US one at the end of the month as well so it's hugely exciting and thank you so much for giving us your time and coming on well oh, thank you I had so much fun thank you thank you so much for having me
0: and just a little reminder it's out on the 4th of March in the UK and what's the date for the US release the 31st of March in the US and where can people find you if they want to come and find you Oh, so
2: um, I, I'm on Instagram, um, um, uh That's
0: probably the best place to find me. Great. And we'll put all that information in the show notes as well. Thank you so much. This was, um, it was so lovely to have a chat. Thank you. That was great. Thank you so much.
1: You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Windsor. You can find show notes, including the best
0: ways to get in touch with us, as well as any reading recommendations mentioned in the episode at nottobusytowrite.com
1: And if you're enjoying the show don't forget to subscribe and please go ahead and leave us a little review, it really helps others help to find the podcast.
0: You can find Ali on Instagram at Ali underscore Miller underscore and Penny at Penny Music
1: and editing is by Ewan Miller-McRegan